you may or may not know, about twice a year we set aside a weekend to focus on race and justice from the point of view of Jesus of Nazareth and the writers of scripture and church history, as well as where we're at in our cultural moment. And our very special guest with us this weekend is J.T. Thomas. Now, he's a very hard man to introduce because he's done so many fascinating things. He's worked as an actor, an entertainer. He has long roots in the entertainment industry. He's the nephew of Nina Simone, who they called the High Priestess of Soul and was an active civil rights kind of legend. And so long-standing tradition, both in the church and in the entertainment industry. And he's a preacher at a multi-ethnic church, but he's here because in 2014, after the killing of Eric Gardner, he and his family moved to Ferguson to live there, write and walk those streets and function as peacemakers from the way of Jesus. He founded a nonprofit called Civil Righteousness that we have been following for the last year or two. If you're around for all the pray tests last year and pray on MLK, that's all his leadership that we're following from a distance. And I actually was introduced to him through my wife who found him online and there are these videos, you can go Google him and whatever of him like in the middle of riots, violent clashes between protesters and police, like mayhem all around him, praying with people, calm, peacemaking in the way of Jesus. And I'm like, I have not seen anything like this in my life. And he carries a spirit that does not map onto the culture wars or the binaries of left or right, that is very honest about the pain of our nation, but yet has just a totally different perspective about how we approach it as followers of Jesus. So um, the gift of the internet is that we can all be digitally mentored by people on the other side of the world. And he's been that to myself and a number of our leaders and some of our core team. And so this is really like a dream come true. You know, when you invite somebody and you're like, I don't know if they'll come. Who wants to come to Portland right now? But um, here he is. So this is such an honor. And I just would invite you, James chapter 1, to receive, to humbly receive the word of God planted in you which can receive you. And the prerequisite to all learning is humility. And there's very little humility often in this conversation on both sides of the culture wars. There's a lot of kind of defensive arrogance. And so may God just give us the spirit of Christ, the spirit of humility to humbly receive the word of God planted in us, which can save us. That cuts deep to bone and marrow, often hurts at an emotional level, but it's the, it's the hurt of a surgeon, of a scalpel, that then cuts the cancer out and brings us to a place of healing and renewal. So that's what I'm praying over us this morning. Um, would you please give a warm welcome to J.T. Thomas. Thank you so much. and um, Such a glorious privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, so thankful for the leadership here for receiving me. And I open this morning just by simply saying grace and peace to you. Grace and shalom. I'm just going to pray one more time because we need the Holy Spirit. Comforter, teacher, counselor, friend. Would you come now, spirit of wisdom and revelation? Lead us into a glorious revealing of the Son. We say now, take us up to that Isaiah 2-2 mountain of the Lord and teach us your ways, we pray. Would you just pray that now, Father? 
teach me your ways. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. I bring you greetings from Ferguson, Missouri, which is a suburb of St. Louis. And my wife and my daughter could not make the trip with me, but they are truly the better part of me. Uh, like Jesus, they help hold all things together. <laughs> so, excuse me if I fall apart, it's because my wife's not here. But I come today to speak to you not as a great theologian or a smart guy. In fact, I may be learning that Portland is one of the highest educated uh, vicinities in our nation. I may be the dumbest guy within a few miles of this place. So I boast today and greet you in my weakness. I also greet you and speak today out of my poverty of spirit, knowing that when I'm empty, the Lord will fill my cup. Anybody empty this morning? Seeing the vulnerability and the reality of acknowledging where we are in our weakness and the humility of approaching such an incendiary topic as historic wounding due to racism or injustice the greatest way that we can go into a place of understanding, a high place of understanding, which is the mountain of the Lord, we have to approach that place from a really low place. And so, as I began to inquire of the Lord, what is it exactly that you would have me bring to this beautiful people, your people in Portland? I felt like there's an impartation of peace that the Lord desires to release, not only in this teaching moment, but over the course of the day as we engage in other conversations and do some things in prayer. And as I begin to gather tomorrow with leaders around the city from different backgrounds and in the days ahead, there's a high revelation of the shalom of God that I believe that the Lord has sent me on assignment here to release today. And there is an oil that I'm expecting to be released even as I'm talking to you this morning. It's the oil of healing. It's that Psalm 133 oil where there's a commanded blessing when brethren, somebody say brethren. When brethren dwell together in unity, there's something of oil uh, that I believe flows from the very throne room of God in the book of Revelation. There's the description of a tree that says has leaves for the healing of the nations. And I believe that there's something that God is looking for us to lay hold of. In fact, there's a groan in our hearts that we've been reaching for and we've been hearing the, the, and seeing the cultural groans looking for healing throughout generations. We, would, we could hear the sound of our enslaved foremothers and forefathers. Maybe we could look at global uh, history of oppression of peoples of every color that have never been removed or exempt from the tragic pain of the fall of humanity who have been grasping throughout history to lay hold of the leaves and the balm that is created from that leaf that would actually heal the wounds of the desolations of many generations. 
We have to approach this conversation from a place of deep humility and recognizing that all of our righteous deeds, all of our marches and all of our protesting and all of our uh, panel discussions and forums and even tears have brought us to a place of works that have not manifested the historic fruit of healing that the Apostle John saw in the day where God comes and he wipes the tears away from the eyes of every person in every nation. We cannot expect different results by doing the same thing. So I bring to you a message today of reproof. I'm speaking as an heir with you, a brother. But I'm also speaking as an oracle today. Because the father has always been jealous to reveal his son. And the glory of the son was to reveal the father. That was what he was most passionate about. I was telling the Comers last night, I, somehow along the way I got labeled the race guy. I'm here to tell you I could care less about race. I care about Jesus. And I'm having the conversation about ethnicity because heaven is talking about it. Because the father is revealing something to us. He's after something in the earth. He is jealous that the son be revealed and the son is jealous that the glory of the father would be revealed on the earth, manifested in every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. That's why we have the conversation, not because it's popular politically, not because folks are suddenly getting awakened to, to trouble and wanting to have the conversation. No, no, no. There is something that the father is after. So in the old church that I grew up in, the pastor would say, well, if I had a title today, it would be. That was the easy way to introduce your title, right? This is not a, 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 a really tight-knit title. It's not uh, sexy, if I can say that from the stage in Portland. Is that okay? In fact, I said it to my wife. She said, that's really cheesy. <laughs> I love my wife. She keeps it real. But I literally had a vision of a shipment of peace coming to Portland. And I felt like peace is coming to the Portland on three ships. Kinship, sonship, and citizenship. And there's this invitation into understanding kinship or family. Embracing sonship and operating in our kingdom citizenship that will literally change the spiritual atmosphere of this city and indeed the nation. Now, if the delight of the son is to reveal the glory of the father, we have to look at how the son revealed the father. And in Hebrews 2, 10 through 13, it says for, and I'm reading from the New King James Version, it was fitting for him, the Father, for whom are all things and by whom are all things. Somebody say all things. All things. 
in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. Somebody say one. One. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. This is profound. The father saw fit to perfect humanity through his son Jesus, and Jesus is perfected. That, That perfection comes through suffering, and it says that he, the Lord Jesus, called us brethren, and he saw fit to call us brethren because Just as he was sanctified, so also shall we be sanctified. There is a fellowship of suffering. There is an understanding and a revelation of Jesus that all of the brothers, all the fathers, sons, and daughters come into only by way of suffering. And so for this reason, in verse 12, he says, I will declare your name, Father, to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, verse 13, I will put my trust in him. There's something uniquely powerful about learning how to trust the Lord in the face of hopelessness. Learning how to trust and understand and comprehend the beauty, the glory, the faithfulness, the majesty, the power, the fear, the the terror, the glory, the goodness, the greatness of God through the challenge of persecution, suffering, mourning, lament, sorrow. Even my, I'm standing in front of you as a fifth generation preacher's kid because my great, 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 great grandma named. In the bowels, in the fiery furnace of chattel slavery, they, 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 they uh, deeply understood something uh, about the nature of God that could not be taught by humanity. In fact, some of my friends who are in the nation of Islam, a, a black militant kind of uh, black power uh, ethnocentric religious group that's kind of a branch of Islam uh, often say, well, you know, the white man taught black men Christianity to to castrate us and take away our power. I'm saying, when's the last time you went to an all-black church and an all-white church? In a black church, I'm up here preaching, and I got to tell people to calm down because they're so, ah, hallelujah! And I go to the white church, I'm like, it's okay, you can raise your hands. So you're trying to tell me those folks taught these folks how to do what they do. Let's let's just get practical. Right? What happened was when we could not protest, when we could not march, when we could not boycott, we had no political power. We couldn't even gather to pray on the slave masters uh, on his land. They had to pray into into, uh, pots and bowls to muffle the sounds of their prayers. My ancestors, they had to whisper through the night. They would work all day. Then exhausted, they would get to work in the spirit. God, if not me, Lord, one day let my children's children be free. I know you are good. 
good God. I know you can do it, God. If you can part the Red Sea for Moses, God, I know you can do it for me. I may not see it in my day, but God, let my children see it. There was something that was worked in them through suffering about the faithfulness and the goodness of God. And now our generation is experiencing a baptism in fire that is testing all of us like never before. Previous generations have experienced corporate testing. Previous generations have experienced corporate fire. Perhaps 2020 was the first time anyone alive in our generation, save perhaps those who still have memory of World War II and some of the things that happened. This is the first time that the millennials and the Gen Zers have been tested in, in, in what I believe is not just a baptism. It's not a baptism of fire from the enemy. But what if I were to posture and submit to you? It's a baptism of fire from heaven. See, the, John the Baptist said that there is one who is coming whose shoes I'm not worthy to tie. And he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, in super charismatic circles, we equate the Holy Spirit with the fire. But let's look at what Luke 12 says. In Luke 12, Jesus says, starting at verse 49, I came to send fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you not at all, but rather division. Somebody say division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided. Three against two, two, two against three. Father will be divided against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Jesus makes every kind of distinction for what the fire that he kindles is going to produce on the earth. And this, for many years, was so perplexing to me. I thought you were the prince of peace. How is it that you did not come to bring peace? What I thought we were supposed to be united. What are you talking about? You came to bring division. I don't understand. This is contradictory. This is why atheists don't want to serve you. This is why Gnostics say you can't be the true God, because there's too many contradictions. Lord, what is it? How does this fit into your plan? And suddenly, when fire began to grip the streets of my city, seven years ago, and then fire began to grip the streets of other cities. And then last summer, fire came to your city. Calamity comes upon a city. All of a sudden, we see the political atmosphere of our nation become this incendiary uh, cesspool. We, we begin to see division at every scale, even between family members, family members that can't even have meals together anymore because you know this person is voting one way and you're voting one way. All of a sudden, I'm seeing mother against daughter and, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. I'm seeing people not wanting to come to church or, well, if they could, if COVID didn't exist. I, I'm seeing people uh, uh, entering in into a division and I'm going, oh my goodness, Lord, not, not what are the white po folks doing, not, not what are the black people doing, not, not what are Antifa doing, but Lord, what are you doing? Where are you at? What are you saying? 
I realize that we've entered into the disciplines of God. I'm going to say it in a way that's really unpopular in the church in any region and probably really unpopular here. I would go as far as to say we've entered into the righteous judgments of God. That's a scary word. Judgment is a very scary word because it's been misused. It's been abused. It's been misunderstood. And it stands in diametric opposition to the cultural nuances that we love to operate in as believers. We, we don't, the last thing anybody wants to be called is judgmental. But yet, this glorious king who we worship is both a king and a judge. He is both, Jesus is both God and man. He empathizes with us in our weakness and in our fear and in our sufferings and in our trouble and in our confusion and misunderstandings as a man, Jesus the man. But he also demands that humanity move out of our Adamic nature as humans and get set into a kingdom that is above the kingdoms of this world. And he demands from the kingly perspective, absolute allegiance. And he is holy. Somebody say holy. Holy. He is a righteous God. And the book of Revelation says in righteousness, he judges and he makes war. What do we do with a loving God who judges and makes war? How do we reconcile that character and that nature to what we perceive as good and just and right and true? You see, there was something that uneducated, enslaved persons who did not have access to Google and to Amazon and Kindle and all of the resources we have today to read everybody else's opinion about everything that's going on. They didn't have access to all of that. All they had access to was a place and a realm in the spirit where God would reveal that he is a king and a judge. And the fact that they knew he was a righteous judge who would come and set wrong things right. He would bring justice. They understood. They didn't have to look at CNN and and listen to everybody else's commentary about what justice is. They had a deep knowing in their spirit. He is just. He is true. He is holy. And he will not allow all the tears that we've sown in mourning not to reap a harvest of joy. He will liberate us one day because he's faithful. And they didn't get that from any commentary or any man. They got it from Jesus and got it from Father. Does that make sense? Beloved, we as the church are becoming experts in politics, experts in anti-racism, experts in all of these theories, and we've lost the revelation of who God is. Therefore, we are quickly becoming Uh, uh, pharisaical, filled with righteous deeds and good works in the name of justice, good works in the name of, of kingdom, and yet we cannot articulate the one who it's all about and who it's all for. Somebody say JT. 
this doesn't feel good. <laughs> so in Luke 12, God began to reveal to me that this division is a division between our unredeemed identity in the first Adam and our redeemed identity in the second Adam. He says, I came to divide between your history of systemic bias and, 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 and cultural prejudices and, 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 and pathologies of, of oppression and, and ways of being programmed, enculturated pain and enculturated wounding and, and different ways, survival mechanisms that you may have developed and inherited through your people group to survive in a, in a nation where there are literal systems of power that say that you aren't a human at all. And, and all of the curses that come upon that word curses and systemic brokenness that you've inherited. And he says, that's real. And, and in fact, let me tell you that in light of this reality, God says that there is there is no one righteous so that means just because you may be a, a, a minority of color or a person of color who's in the minority and you've inherited the the pain of the sting of the I'd say the the sharp edge of the oppressive sword in the kingdom the person swinging the sword is just as oppressed as you are wait do you, did you hear that According to the standard of God, the one who wields the sword against the oppressed is just as broken as the person who receives the sharp edge of the sword. So Jesus says, all of you in your first Adam identity as a white person, as a Pacific Islander, as a Native American, as an Asian person, whatever it may be, he says, all of you on this side of the cross are broken, sinful, unredeemed. But I've come to divide between the flesh and your redeemed identity in Jesus, the second Adam. So when you pass into my, through my blood, you get knit into a, a family, a redeemed family. And suddenly, all of the ways, the pathologies that you've inherited, all of your ways of living, moving, and even engaging in the culture, it shifts to where you are now a, a, a vessel of a, of a superior DNA and a superior reality that causes you to love and bless your enemies when nothing around you tells you to do it, that causes you to be one with the African American and one with the Asian, and suddenly you feel their pain because it's not just their pain, it's your pain because you have an inheritance with them. Do you hear me? So in Matthew 12, verse 46 through 50, we see this play out when Jesus is talking to the multitudes and it says uh, they came to him. He's talking to the multitudes in verse 46. His mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. And then one said to him, look, your mother and brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. And Jesus answered and says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretches out his hand toward his disciples and says, these, the, the ones who follow me, who do my will, these are my mother and my brothers. 
For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. There is a literal distinction and a separation from earthly family that you enter into when you enter into the family of God. That means God will cause you to, to be infused with the code of heaven and the, and the, the, moral, the moral system, the, the precepts, the laws of heaven begin to be written on your heart. And that means all the things that you may have been culturally taught, all, you might have to leave some things behind. If you're a, a Muslim and you give your life to Jesus, I guarantee you that scripture will become real. If you're in the Middle East, there is a price to be paid for following Jesus. That may bring a separation between what you've known and what you believe, but God rewrites our code and he brings us into kinship. Somebody say kinship. And because we're in kinship, and this is a lot of scripture today, but I'm just blowing through it. Romans 8, 12 says, therefore, brethren, Romans 8, chapter 12. Romans chapter 8, verse 12. Therefore, brethren, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh because the word of God divides even to the soul and the spirit, the bone and the marrow. It cuts to the joints and the marrow. The marrow is what's inside your bones. The joints is what holds it together. God comes and he sends a baptism of fire to shake everything that can be shaken, even things that we thought were, we, we had together. Man, I got it together. Our church has it together. Our city is an activist city. We're a justice city. We're a progressive city. We got it together. And then God goes, here's a little fire on that. Let me show you just how much, how broken you really are, because the fire is going to bring division. It's going to bring all, it's going to bring everything that needs to be exposed, including you. Not just white, not just, I'm talking everybody. When God sends the fire, it touches everyone and everything. Does that make sense? So the division comes, and in Romans 8, he says, since we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. We're not in bondage to the flesh anymore. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body and you will live. For as many are as led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. If you are led by the Spirit of God, you are a son of God or a daughter of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed children of God. And if children, then we are heirs of God. God is our inheritance. And we are joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. I'm here to tell you that I could break out uh, 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 history and, and spend this moment that I have with you 
talking and detailing and naming uh, racism and, and recounting personal stories and tell stories of cities that I've been in and riots and protests that I've been in and all the different things that have happened. But no, 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 no. I believe that God is looking for a mouthpiece in the earth who will begin to articulate not just our, our shared broken history. That's real. We have to look at it. We have to talk about it. We have to embrace it. We have to lament. We have to mourn. We have to empathize. We have to do all that thing, uh, all those things. But I believe that what's happened is we're getting stuck in lament. We're getting stuck in the brokenness and we've not gotten to the conversation of healing. And the conversation of healing is around a person and a place. It's around the fact that we have an inheritance with one another together and we are going. God has caused the pain of the past to bring us into the perplexity of the present so that the church can become a prophetic voice that speaks about the promise of the future that we have together. God is looking for a mouthpiece in Portland, Oregon, not just talking about it, that manifests oneness in a real way that we would begin to embody the new man. Somebody say the new man. But there is a great door before us with many adversaries. And I know that you all have had many conversations. Anti-racism is a popular word right now. Without question, the gospel is the most anti-racist document that has ever existed. The gospel written and the gospel lived is the most pure personification of anti-racism that ever existed. But Columbia University professor John McWhorter, in writing about anti-racism, distinguishes the first wave as akin to Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman and the great abolitionists of old who aimed at, above all, abolishing slavery. The second wave being the historic civil rights movement that was led by the church, by the way, out of the deep south which aimed above all at ending segregation. And then the third wave that we're in now, he writes, can foster race-based disparities that eerily parallel those conditioned in the past by overt segregation. For that reason, although the third wave addresses concrete issues like police violence, It actually focuses more to a new degree on how people think. In other words, it's much harder now. I mean, we can we can talk about the legacy and what what institutional racism looks like, empowered hatred for the image of God within man. We can talk about what what power structures look like and what all these structures are that need to change. But what's interesting is the, the real way that the anti-racism movements are, are, are moving in the culture today is by pointing out iniquity in people's hearts. It's not enough. You don't have to actually be a police officer. You don't have to actually uh, uh, be a person in a position of, of legislative power or cultural power uh, to be guilty. 
according to the anti-racist, you just have to, if you don't say it the way I think you should say it, if you're not thinking about racism the way I think you should think about it, then you're a racist. And if you correct me about that, then I'm a sellout or, uh, or I just don't get it or I'm not empathetic. And it's real easy for me as a black man. I could stay right. I could stand here in front of you and those of you online who are watching who are of majority culture. And I could say, you know what, because I'm black and I've been oppressed and I have a history of oppression and both of my parents grew up in the Jim Crow South. My dad, up to his dying day, he believed that uh, white people were were could be kind. But at the end of the day, they would cut you. Because he grew up in the Jim Crow South. So I could tell those stories and I could say, because I have that testimony, that story, you should only listen to what I have to say and you should empathize with me. But God says, everybody, even your enemies, have a seat at the table. And that if we're really going to get after this thing, what we have to do is recognize that at the table of the Lord, it's a space for bi-directional listening and bi-directional healing because there's bi-directional wounding. Does that make sense? And so it's interesting, though, that that now this it's just it's this emphasis on what's going on inside of you that I want to get to. Like, I need to get, uh, you know, some of my friends who are white, who are highly engaged and active uh, and motivated. They get so motivated that they take it upon themselves to become the voice of the Holy Spirit in their family's lives. Well, I understand racism now, so I'm going to tell every white person that I know about what I know now. And if they don't respond the way I, I respond, I'm writing them off. I've heard white people just just last week. We we're doing a march in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I heard a white lady who was marching with us expletive field. She goes, I hate white people. I'm like, baby. When's the last time you looked in the mirror? It's because if we try to become the discerner of people's thoughts, then we enter into witchcraft because we become the Holy Spirit, who's the only one who can reveal the hearts in the minds of people. The word of God is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the hearts, and the Holy Spirit must, by revelation, change the human heart. Does that make sense? So we've been functioning... And I believe, I don't know Portland very well, this is my very first time here, but from a distance, I believe that what has happened is that we can move into a human sorrow in the pursuit of justice and righteousness. We can begin to operate out of the flesh instead of the spirit, even though our intentions are good. So what happens is, 2 Corinthians 7, Paul has written to the church of of Corinth and He's corrected them earlier in in 2 Corinthians 2. We see that he says, I don't want to have another painful visit with you. So the father in Proverbs, it says, because of love, Proverbs 3, it says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as the father, the son in whom he delights. 
So this spiritual father, Paul, goes to the church of Corinth, and apparently there was a dispute of some sort. He writes a letter to them, and they're like, man, he does not sound happy. This is offensive to me. I can't believe he would be among us, and then he would write this type of letter to us. So they send Timothy, and then Titus comes to try to be a peacemaker. And so in, by the time we get to 2 Corinthians um, 7, Paul says this. He goes, in verse 4, I have spoken to you with great frankness, and I take great pride in you. I'm greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. We could just stop there and, and go into a totally different sermon. In all of our troubles, our joy knows no bounds. What is it about joy that he understood? What is it about trouble that he understood that gave him boundless joy? How many of you would say, I have been so overjoyed in the last year? It's because we've not lived in the spirit. There's a place of access in the spirit for Portland. There's a portal that God wants to open to give access that lifts the heaviness. But the fruits of the flesh produce the fruits of depression and anger and anxiety and weariness. It's popular in the black community to go, well, I'm just so tired. I'm tired. I'm tired. I'm tired. The Holy Spirit says, get untired. It's the truth. My ancestors wrote songs, gospel songs. We've come too far to turn around now. James Cleveland wrote a song. I don't feel no ways tired. I've come too far from where I started from. Nobody told me that the road would be easy. And I don't believe he brought me this far to leave me. Where is our hope, O generation? Where is our hope, Portland? That's the side sermon. That wasn't the point I was going to make. <laughs> For when we came to Macedonia, we had no rest and we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside and fears within. But God, somebody say, but God. I need an organ. But God, dun, dun. God who comforts the downcast, bum, bum, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Listen, that's how we preached in the old school. Is that okay? I can cut up a little bit. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. Now, Titus functioned as a peacemaker. And I'm here in the spirit of Titus today to the city of Portland as a peacemaker to say, the comforter is coming to Portland. And indeed, he has come through the power of the Holy Spirit. He told us about your longing, your deep sorrow, and your ardent concern. I've heard of your longing for justice and righteousness and equity. I've heard of your activism and your deep concern for, for me and, and my people. And, and, and maybe not everybody's concerned at the level that they need to be concerned, but I know there's some concerned white folks in this city. Now, I'm not centering whiteness, which is what I will be accused of doing. I'm centering Jesus. But even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, he says, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, 
but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow, somebody say godly sorrow, brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. I'm here to tell you that there has been, I'll name it, there has been movement in the earth, in our cities that have destroyed our cities and brought death. In fact, the end result of many cities, statistically, it would be really stunning to see how many cities had violent protests or peaceful protests that turned into violent outbreaks of rioting and anarchy, and how many of those cities today have the highest homicide rate that they've had in 10, 20, 30 years. You know why? It's because when we go into the streets, when we pursue or build a justice movement that is based off of worldly sorrow or human empathy instead of the fact that we have grieved God himself. When we have a sorrow that is based off human empathy alone, when all of our conversation is talking about the other, the white person, the oppressor, or the oppressed, and we're focused this way so much that we're not doing business with God, it actually gets empowered by demons, and violence enters in, pandemonium, pandiamenon, widespread demonic portals open over cities, and cities begin to come under the weight of the authority of anger and rage and then it manifests even within black communities to where black folks are killing black folks and white folks are divided with white folks and God says I have a solution I have planted my sons and daughters a multi-ethnic multicultural ecclesia who will love even they'll love one another even if they don't look like one another and they will love even their enemies when everything on the outside tells them not to love they will have hope and joy even when everything on the outside says do not hope do not have joy God says I want to raise up a bridge town a bridge city a kingdom culture in the midst of the city where I can release the shalom of heaven and make wrong things right and bring healing